Welcome to the second episode of the Circle Strafe Podcast. I'm Austin. And I'm Garrett. And we are a bi-weekly game club podcast playing and reviewing video games new and old. If you'd like to play along with us, feel free to join our Discord linked in the show notes to see what we have in store for the coming weeks. Garrett, what game have you chosen this week? I chose Ace Combat 5, The Unsung War. And that is uh, that was released in 2004 for the PlayStation 2 as the fifth mainline entry to the Ace Combat series. Uh, what would be a quick way for you to describe it to uh, the audience? Ace Combat 5 is an arcade air combat flight sim. It's not nearly as impenetrable as something like DCS World, but there's more realism than, say, Crimson Skies, The High Road to Revenge. That's another game from the, a similar time period. It's sort of like the flight from the uh, Battlefield games. If you've ever seen anyone flying a jet in Battlefield, Battlefield 4 uh, looks sort of like that. If I were to compare this to a racing game, like for automobiles, on a scale from Burnout to iRacing, this is somewhere around Need for Speed Underground. I think really what they're going for is this is Top Gun, the game, without Top Gun license, at least not at this point. They actually have Top Gun Maverick DLC for the most recent one, Ace Combat 7. That's pretty amazing. So this is a nice middle of the ground, uh, a good compromise between complexity and ease of access. Yeah, exactly. Like one of the funny things about this game is you'll have planes that have 80 missiles on board. <laughs> Whereas if you see a real jet, you know, it's got like two or four missiles on their tops. It's not carrying around. There's no possible way to have 80 missiles on a plane. I will not spoil the gameplay section, but I'm just going to say thank God that they let you hold 80 missiles. Yeah, it would be a really short game if you could only fly out, shoot two missiles, and, and go back home. Oh, yeah, it would. Um, other than that, a few other infos about this game is that uh, a limited number of its release was bundled alongside the Hori Flight Stick 2 accessory, which I think would probably be a lot of people's first experience with a flight stick, especially on a console. Yeah, that's really interesting. This was back in PlayStation 2, which is where you really started seeing a lot of peripherals coming out alongside games. If you think about it, this is the heyday of Guitar Hero and Rock Band as well. Yeah, people realize that uh, besides just the immersion that they help, they can also make a lot of money off that. Yes, they can. That's a good way to take a $60 purchase and turn it into a $200, $250 purchase. Yep. Now, um, has this game ever received a re-release at all? Yeah, it did, and it's kind of weird. Um, it got re-released on PlayStation 4. It came out as a pre-order bonus for Ace Combat 7, but to my knowledge, right now, there is no way to get that. Like, you can't just go on the PlayStation Store and buy it. Um, there is some weird workaround you can do in the United States where you buy a United Kingdom PlayStation card and go on there and buy some bundle that they have on the PlayStation Store, but as far as I know, there's no real way to just go out right now and buy it. I am well acquainted with that type of tactic, because as you know, I'm a big fan of the Japanese-only mecha games, and I have bought several off the Japanese PS Store, but I've never actually found something that's only in the UK like that. Yeah, and knowing that you're such a fan of the Japanese mecha games, I'm, I'm really interested to get your take on this game because it's not a mecha game, but it is a Japanese game, and I feel like that design... Philosophy. Philo yeah, design philosophy informs the story a whole lot, but we'll get there. We did not 
talk about this game going into it very much, did we? No, I don't believe so. Outside of, I believe we talked about what our history with the series is, and then the extent of our discussion about it was when you let me know, this is what I'm picking for this week, and I was just like, oh, okay, cool. I think I might have given you a couple of pointers. Like, I might have told you that you can unlock the F-22 by beating the arcade mode, but you didn't even use that tip. And this is going to come up later in the show because there are some things that were really important that I probably could have, should have told you about. Yes, uh, we'll get to that later, but (laughs) there were a few things. Uh, Don't be like me, kids. Probably play the tutorial if you've never played a flight sim. Definitely, and that's kind of the point of shows like this one, podcasts like this. There are many like it, but we choose a game at the beginning of two weeks, and over those two weeks, we play the game and take our notes independently And we try to minimize our conversation about the game so that we can discuss it all on the show and you guys can sit in with us. Exactly. Like the extent for our our conversation for Custom Robo was mostly, I believe, you asked me if there's any point to exploring at the end of days. And then I think there might have been one discussion where I I just sent you like, I love this gun. And that might have been. Yeah, maybe some maybe some memes or something. Yeah, um, for Ace Combat, it was much the same, other than the fact that I was like, I would send Garrett kind of progress reports, like, I'm on mission 14, but I wouldn't go into what the details of that mission uh, were, which is probably a mistake, considering what we're going to talk about <laughs> later that happened. Starting off, though, let's talk about how we played it. How did you play it this time around? I played it on my uh, Steam Deck again. I just used the default install of PCSX2 by Emudeck. There was an option to apply automatic patches, including a widescreen patch, and I did turn that on. All right. I played it using the uh, PCSX2 on the on my Windows 10 computer. It required a bit more setup for me. I didn't have an auto-patcher, uh, so I had to go to some of the websites and figure out the right settings, which speed hacks to put on, because I was having a really annoying glitch right at the start where there were long black bars covering the entire screen. Yeah, I was having sort of an issue with that. It was very minor, and it only really happened when you looked directly in the sun. It wasn't like a black bar. It kind of looked like scan lines, but it wasn't It wasn't a big deal. I mean, you could just ignore it or not fly directly into the sun, which you want to avoid anyway. You want to avoid being Icarus. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, slightly more setup on my end, but overall we're not talking like an hour to get it running flawlessly. We're talking like five, ten minutes, you know, just doing some Googling. It's definitely not as easy or as flawless as uh, playing anything on Dolphin, like Custom Robo that we played last episode. It was pretty much flawless, and there was no tinkering that I had to do at all. Yeah, and I think that's just a... Uh, thing that just happens with PS2 emulation, uh, there's a lot more complexities to it, and I'm not exactly sure why, but I would be interested to learn. Do you have any previous relationship with Ace Combat or Flight Sims in general? No, and like none at all. The only Flight Sim that I've played before this is I played the old Star Wars Flight arcade game and like Rogue Squadron and stuff, which are definitely not serious flight sims they're more just you know like arcade dogfighters i think rogue squadron is another touch point for what like a really really arcadey 
flight sim yeah. feels like and that there's no roll or yaw or pitch or anything like that. So as for like a history with this specific series, I have one friend who is very deep into this series and he sends me memes that I cannot comprehend, but they're based on, like, the intricacies of the lore and stuff. And I'm like, I'm sure this is funny, man. <laughs> Maybe you'll have a bit more of a touch point with it now. At least you can understand when he trashes Belka. Oh, yeah, 100%. It is funny to me, though, that I'm not sure how much of it was just story knowledge, but I'm just like... I, or just the memes that he had sent. But I had a, I had a decent idea of the direction the story was going to go, but we'll get to that. Yeah, somewhat spoiled, I guess, to some extent, just knowing the lore that surrounds the world, if not necessarily this video game in particular. Um, as for me, so when my previous relationship with Ace Combat 5, uh, my first flight sim was not an Ace Combat game. It was actually a copycat from Konami. <laughs> uh, so Ace Combat was made by Project Aces, which is Namco Bandai. It's one of their in-house developers, studios. So Air Force Delta came out on Dreamcast, and that was Konami trying to make a competitor for Ace Combat, which was on PlayStation at the time. And after that game, I didn't play any flight sims for many years uh, until a friend told me I had to play Ace Combat, which coincidentally, this is the same friend who gave me his scratched copy of Custom Robo from last episode. Um, this guy just keeps coming up. Dude, he does. Uh, he loved Ace Combat 4, which that was the first PlayStation 2 game. Uh, he still played that game a lot. Like You can tell by playing Ace Combat 5, these games are made to be played over and over. And he was still on that kick with Ace Combat 4. So he'd beaten Ace Combat 5, and he just loaned me his copy once he'd beaten it and told me I had to play it. So I ended up with a copy of my own. I'm not sure if I just kept his or bought one later. Uh, it was a very enjoyable first experience for me. So you experienced what I did in the last episode where we revisited a game from our childhood, whereas you had you had experienced Custom Robo before. It was, uh, what was it, like at a Kmart or something playing? And, yep, uh, a demo kiosk at Kmart. Yep, so, you know, you didn't really... You had about as much introduction to the series as I did to Ace Combat. So uh, it will be interesting to see if you ended up uh, liking it as much as you did back then. Yeah, it's flip-flopped, and that's why I chose this game. So last episode, you chose Custom Robo, because that was one of your childhood favorites, and so I thought, you know, just I take my turn making you play one of my childhood favorites. <laughs> Glad you did, because it got me uh, kind of hooked on Flight Sims, and I'm interested to see where m the uh, rabbit hole of this series, because I know it, uh, it goes deep. This game was the fifth Ace Combat game, not just the fifth mainline title, but just the fifth Ace Combat title. Now there are like 18 different games in the series with a bunch of spinoffs and stuff. Most recently, Ace Combat 7 is the one that released. But there is a prequel to this game called Ace Combat Zero. In the lore of Ace Combat 5, you'll hear them talking about the Belkin War. A lot of the characters are veterans of the Belkin War. And all of that is detailed in Ace Combat Zero. Oh, that's awesome. Do you play as a new original character or one of the characters from this just in the past? It's been so long, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> all right. Well, let's talking about the rabbit hole of this series, you want to talk a little bit about the setting? Yeah, before we get into anything, um, last time we talked a lot about the 
art direction for Custom Robo because it was such a... It was the part of the game that really grabbed me, and the setting is what really grabbed me in Ace Combat. So, what is the setting called? Setting is called Strange Real. Yeah, one word, Strange Real. It's an alternate universe that, in a lot of ways, looks like ours, like from an astronomical scale. Their universe is the same as ours. The game, Ace Combat 5 and all of the Ace Combat games, mainline Ace Combat games, take place on Earth, which is orbiting the same sun in the same solar system with the same stars and planets in the sky. And on this strange real Earth, you fly aircraft that are licensed copies of real planes from our Earth. So, you know, there's the Lockheed Martin, McDonnell Douglas, Northrop Grumman logos on the splash screen when you turn on the game because Project Ace is licensed aircraft from them. It's also got Dassault and Panavia from Western Europe and it's got Sukhoi and Mikoyan from Russia. But the thing about Ace Combat and Strange Reel is that none of those countries actually exist in Strange Reel and it doesn't look like those companies do either. So somehow the F-35 Lightning II exists, but it's not made by Lockheed Martin, I guess. You know, in real life, Lockheed Martin assembles the F-35 Lightning II at United States Air Force Plant 4 in Fort Worth, Texas, but there is no Texas. There's no United States. There's no continent of North America. In Strange Reel, if you look at Earth out of context, you would you would think it was completely another Earth-like planet, not Earth. All the geography and landmasses have changed. The only thing, the only landmass that they seem to share is uh, Antarctica. It seems like it's still there and it's mostly the same. So all of that together leads to a very interesting feeling with the setting because it all feels familiar yet completely different. Which is why they call it Strange Real. So that actually came from a tagline that they made for Ace Combat 4, when they were uh, showing it at, I think it was E3, they said it was, it said, quote, the strange, comma, real world of Ace Combat 4. And that got, like, squished together, so strange real, and fans kept calling it that, so the name stuck. I'm always a fan of when fans end up making certain terms stick. It's always fun. Pokemon has had a lot of that. Really? Yeah. I know uh, all of the lore for, like, Call of Duty zombies, pretty much all of that lore is stuff from fans theory crafting on the forums. It's always fun when uh, fans get to influence games they're passionate about. Yeah, it is. I, one of the things that I think this game makes it feel so similar to ours, other than there being, you know, real planes, um, a lot of the nations that exist in this world... Echo real-world counterparts, so Osea is quite clearly supposed to be the United States of America. Osea, USA, they kind of sound the same. Uh, they have a president just like we have a president here in the United States. Then they have Yuktobania, which is, I mean, who do you think they are? I'd probably say Russia. Yeah, Soviet Union. Their flag looks like the Soviet Union flag. And then there are some like super obvious ones like like Sapin, S A P I N. It's literally Spain with the second and third letters swapped. <laughs> That's amazing. We didn't I don't think we saw them at all in this game. I don't know if you see I think you see you see them later. 
uh, in a later game. There's um, a, a couple of squadrons that, that show up. There's Espada and Escudo squadrons, which that's Spanish. Yeah. And plus their flag is kind of close. That's another thing is the flags in this game. You, you will see them quite often um, represented in the livery on the planes. The thing about like the Ocean flag, though, it kind of looks more like the EU flag to me more than anything else. Wonder if OSHA is just supposed to be kind of a combination of the United States and European Union, like kind of molded into one or something. I think they are. I think a lot of these nations are like blended gradients in a way. So this this does bring up a question. Okay. We're flying real planes, but who made them? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but all sides in this game seem like they have access to all planes. Yes, because you will be fighting uh, like ev- almost every plane on the roster at least once, outside of a few exceptions. So I have no idea if that is a gameplay concession or if there is some other like uh, country out there that made all of them and is just selling to every side. I think that's probably what it is. I think the concept is that there these... They were developed by whomever, but then these multinational corporations all sort of get their hands on the design packages, which you will see one of these corporations later on in in Ace Combat 5 represented. And later on in the Ace Combat timeline, all of the nations are eventually eclipsed by these giant corporations, and it essentially turns into a cyberpunk kind of thing, but with... Planes. I guess a diesel punk would be kind of close to, to the idea. But yeah, you know, in real life, when you see a MiG, you think, hey, that's a Soviet design. If you see an F-14, you think, hey, that's an American design. So I think if you're an aviation enthusiast, you're going to find this especially weird. So yeah, I am not an aviation enthusiast. I have always just thought, oh, that's cool. Uh, so most of that was not confusing to me. I just was thinking about it more like a gameplay concession, and I'm glad they had it because it let me try out, you know, like 20-plus planes through my playthrough. Yeah, I really like the variety of planes in this game as well. and Over I'm gla- 50. Yeah, over 50 flyable, and there's like 70-something in the game total if you count all the UAVs and weird, like, super weapons that exist, which that's something that's worth mentioning. Uh, about the design and the setting of Strange Reel is at some point in its history, they they had a Cold War in the 80s, kind of like ours, and they had a corresponding arms race, but they did not, as far as I can tell, have a World War One or World War Two that it's published that I could find, which is kind of weird from a historical perspective because the whole Bolshevik Revolution and then World War Two is what led to the Cold War in real life. I'm sure there is some reason for Osea and Yuktabania having their Cold War. I, I just don't know what it is. So there was a there was a massive arms race that corresponded with that, just like in our real world. But there was a asteroid that was heading towards Earth called Ulysses, and that led to a Ulysses incident in 1999. Is what they called it, the Ulysses incident, which gave like a second arms race. So you notice in this game there are a lot of weird futuristic like conceptual what would be a conceptual super weapon in our world actually has been built and is functional in strange real yeah which i'm glad that they do that and that's one of the things and how we were talking about 
uh, it's a middle waypoint between hyper-realism and arcade, is they're able to use these to create boss fights that would not be possible in a hyper-realistic, like, fully, you know, 10 out of 10 complexity flight sim. Yeah, exactly. If you play DCS World, your missions are, uh, I'm going to fly this A-10 Warthog, and there are one, two, or three tanks that I'm going to go airstrike and then fly home. And this is way, way more interesting than that to me and I think to most people. So I, you, you I agree. But definitely not for the uh, super aviation nerds, you know, who want everything to be accurate. They'll, they might look at the uh, 80 missiles on board and scoff. Yeah, exactly. That might be, they just turn the PlayStation off at that point. Which I think those people, you know, you don't have to go spend... $500 on uh, rudder pedals and a, and a HOTAS and all that. You, you just play it with a PlayStation controller and it's fine. That's how I did, and it was great. Yeah. I played it with a Steam Deck controller, which, it, yeah, I mean, same essentially the same buttons as a PlayStation controller. They're just labeled differently. But yeah, a lot of these weapons and stuff that you see in the, in the game, like these massive rail guns and stuff, um, that's all stuff that the people in the game developed to either destroy the asteroid or in some cases clean up afterwards because they they were able to blow up this asteroid but parts of it still hit earth and there were like half a million casualties in this massive humanitarian crisis and so humanity on the whole was able to survive but now everyone's got super weapons and everyone is fighting over scraps so that's kind of where we find ourselves once we reach the story of this game um, ultimately, I think, though, overanalyzing the geopolitics of Strange Real is putting the cart before the horse because the setting and the story exists to serve the gameplay, not the other way around, like we were talking about. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, if uh, we've said all we want about the setting, you want to move into graphics? Yeah, let's talk about the graphics and the art direction. All right. Um, so... In all honesty, in terms of art direction, I don't have as much to say here as I did for uh, Custom Robo, because Custom Robo had a very uh, stylized, you know, anime kind of art direction. This, though, it's more realistic. It's very good uh, graphics for the time period. Um, and as far as I can tell, as a non-aviation nerd, all of the planes appear to be depicted uh, very well. They, they all are visually distinct and have what you would expect from them. It was very good. In terms of the actual unique things that the games invented by art direction, I thought all the super weapons and that kind of stuff, they, look, they looked great. Yeah, I agree. So, um, just some fun facts. The developers actually went and in person inspected the aircraft that they depicted in the game. And the environments are satellite images they're designed from satellite images so they really were going for as close to realism as they could on that front they were trying to sort of push the playstation 2 as much as they could i think and i agree with what you said about the super weapons they look to me like they were designed based on real world concept designs i don't have any anything to back that up but that's just sort of the they have the ring of truth to to my brain they definitely all the super weapons definitely look like they could be uh like conceptual blueprints that we might find from the early 2000s or late exactly. 90s. exactly 
Yeah. Which I think is the point. I think it is too. I think I think they probably did design it off of off of some concepts from back then. Now, there is another thing about the art direction that doesn't involve the gameplay itself, and that's the cutscenes. What did you think of the cutscenes in this game and the direction they went with those? Uh it was really interesting. Um so most of the models look pretty high quality for the time period. Yeah, very respectable. Yeah, I wouldn't say they were top of the pack for PS2 models, but uh, definitely upper echelon. I don't remember seeing very or very much uh, like facial rigging for like, but that was not really done all that commonly back then. And that wasn't really the point. It it was it's about the planes, not the people's faces. Exactly. But I really I enjoyed it because it all feels like. This is a documentary we're watching sometime in the future, and like we're on Strange Real because uh, how they do it with the um, the photographer and stuff. Yeah, exactly. the The cutscenes are all very like romantically shot. I guess a lot of the story in this game is given to you by a narrator who was a journalist, and it some of it is actually depicted as it's being shot from his camera. Like you see the little recording logo and and a timestamp and stuff and an interesting thing is you'll see him get interrupted too so you will like miss out on a cutscene from our perspective because as he's going to like take a picture of it some other guy like pushes the camera out of the way so you miss out on what was that and that was you know just part of it yeah that was really cool the story is very much a boots on the ground like this guy is here filming a documentary or writing articles which his articles do come up in the game some you know they're mentioned it's really interesting. I, I thought that was a really clever way of making you emotionally invested just by paying attention and very intentionally uh, presenting the story through the direction of the cutscenes. I agree. The cutscenes feel like a war drama from like the 80s you'd expect to see from that kind of thing. It's uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I did too. I I really like even going back now, having played it a whole bunch when I was younger. I was really impressed. I was too with many things. Moving on with art direction, let's talk about the main menu and the pre-battle menus. So, the UI for this game is, if I had to uh, give one word, I'd say sleek and militaristic. It's uh, black and green, straight lines. You know, it's it's like you're looking at some type of military terminal. It uh. It's very immersive. Immersive, that's a good way to put it. It's green, it's boxy, it's digital, and when it comes down to it, I think it was clearly influenced by an aircraft heads-up display. I think that's what they're trying to draw from. If you haven't seen that before, somewhat reminiscent of Metal Gear Solid. That's what I thought. The way that it's like these branching boxes. Yeah. Yeah, it was... uh... It was nice, and the sound effects through when navigating the menu are also very uh, responsive, and I, I liked them. We talked about the models, right? Yep. It's all about the planes, and they just yep. try to make them as close as as close to realistic as the PS2 can handle. Uh, what about textures? Did you look at the textures very closely? Only on the planes, really. Uh, and they, the textures on the planes. Uh, looked really good. I can't say that I ever flew low, or, or well, I flew low a lot, but never uh, was really taking a look at the ground. Yeah, there was a mission. So, did you know that there are a couple of branching paths in this game? 
uh, I did not until I finished it. <laughs> yep, there are branching paths. And I did not tell you this. I just sort of let you play it. And I was very pleased to discover that you and I had taken the opposite paths. So when Chopper asked you if you listened to the song, you said yes, I said no, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's we'll talk about that when we get to the missions. There was a mission that I got which involves the textures, is why I'm bringing this up. And you are flying over a car chase. There are terrorists that are trying to get away in a van, and they are driving over this road which is like five pixels wide and it looks terrible and it zooms in and does like a helicopter chase cam on this little it just looks like a little cube moving along these five pixels on the ground and it was so laughable it like the car spins out and crashes into a building and i just laughed i couldn't it was that's so, amazing it was so dumb oh it looks so bad it took it took me out of the immersion, but I still enjoyed it because I laughed so much about it. Yeah, it, it's definitely clear that in terms of visual fidelity, the planes were the big draw. Like, I mean, surprise! A, it's a game yeah. about flying planes. planes. Yeah, it, it, there's almost a Pokemon aspect to the planes. We got to catch them all and then rank them up, and then they evolve. Yeah, they they do evolve with branching <laughs> evolutions for some. Yep. My I I actually was the plane I chose as my main plane. I did for that reason because it had a branching evolution or whatever. How did the game perform for you? I know we've touched on it a little bit, but in the end, how did it end up working out for you? So, before I figured out all the setup requirements, I played the first 3 levels. I'm like you know, Garrett had told me this gameplay smooth. That this is the choppiest thing ever. I'm like, I don't. I think this is some nostalgia for him. But then, uh, then I realized I looked up and saw it was getting 22 FPS, and I was like, oh. So then I, when I actually uh, fixed my settings, played everything uh, as intended, game performs amazingly. It's uh, very responsive. Just if. It feels good. Movement in that game feels good. Yep, that's what you're doing in in pretty much 100% of the game is flying the plane, and it's important that the planes feel good and feel different from each other. So when it's on PlayStation 2, there are no issues at all that I remember. It's been a long time since I played it on PlayStation 2. With the emulator i was having some issues even like the whole way through playing it on steam deck i ended up changing my resolution to 1x normally it upscales it to 2x i was just having slowdowns and i also um in this game there are three different viewpoints one of them shows you your plane it's like a chase cam i could never use that it always slowed down my um my my system too much it tanked my frame rate so i didn't get to use that if you are playing this on a on a steam deck make sure you cap your frame rate at 60 because if you don't it'll go too fast and the game speed is tied to the frame rate so you'll end up with uh you know alvin and the chipmunks yelling at each other over the radio that is hilarious um, yeah, I actually talk if we're still on gameplay. I'd spent most of the game in that chase cam view. I just found it more uh, accessible for me who had, you know, only ever done flight sims like Rogue Squadron. 
I did a okay. few missions. I did a few missions with the uh, cockpit view, but I definitely found the chase cam was easier to access or access for me. Yeah, we'll talk about that more in the gameplay section. But I I spent all my time in the HUD mode, the default one. The, and the main reason for that is the Air Force Delta, which was my first flight sim. That's the way it was. We stick with what we know. That's right. Uh, believe next would be audio, wouldn't it? That's right. Let's do audio. Okay, so here's the thing about audio. This is honestly the section that I was most excited to talk about. Really? Yes, I know that may sound weird, but I'm really big into video game OSTs, and that was, uh... one, of, that was one of my only experiences with the Ace Combat series uh, before this, because the friend who I told you about, who was like, you know, big uh, fan of it, he's like, hey, listen to this song, put it in one of your tabletop games. Hey, listen to the song. Put it in one of your tabletop games. So, like, I've heard a lot of Ace Combat songs. Actually, I don't think I heard any from Unsung War until this until this game. I loved the soundtrack. Uh, it was it was great. I loved the menu noises, uh, the sound direction for you know like missile lock ons and all that. Also great in my opinion. I loved it. Yeah, I think everything about this game, audio design wise, is is perfect. Um, the menu music, I would describe it as like an atmospheric synth kind of music. If you've played Mass Effect, it's very similar to the Mass Effect music. That is, I, huh. I was wondering what it reminded me of, and I think, yeah, I think that's it. Because I've got reminds a lot of Mass Effect? of Mass Effect. Yeah. So the story music, for the most part, I would describe as bombastic orchestra pieces. There are some that have yep. like electric guitars, right? Yeah, those are, I would not say, are the norm, though. So whenever they those electric guitars do kick in, you're like, oh. Yeah, it's a little weird. You notice that. You do. You do. It has an effect, that's for sure. I'm glad that it's not like some games where the OST just blends into the background and you you can't even realize there is an OST. No, you're, you're going to hear the music throughout your gameplay. They are trying to inject emotion into what would normally be just a bland military, you know, flying jets, blowing up tanks. They want you to feel like you're doing this with a purpose, shooting down other jets and such, and the music being orchestral, emotional, tugging at your heartstrings is part of the way that I think they accomplished this. It's very cinematic feeling. Because, like, when you go into a swoop in and you, like, bomb a target right as something crescendos, you know, it's great. Yeah, that's a special moment. Um, yep. whereas, the, whereas the mini music was described, I described it as more Mass Effect. This is definitely Star Wars to me, the gameplay music. Did you know that the music from Mission, Fl Mission 4, called First Flight, was played during the opening ceremony of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics? I had no clue. Yeah, it's really cool. That that Did, that it makes sense. I mean, if you hear that track, it would totally fit, but yeah. with the opening ceremony of the Olympics. So, go go listen to that track if you haven't. Uh okay. What what's the name of the track? I'll listen to it right now. First Get Flight. First Flight. Mission uh, and Mission 4 First Flight. So while I'm looking that up, did you know that Puddle of Mud is in Ace Combat 5? That is so hilarious. Puddle of Mud. Yeah, blurry. 
this was actually I think that was a 2001 release puddle of mud was huge back then this yep. was um one of the things that one of the bands that Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit he found them and like sort of put them up to the to the front he took them on one of their tours I can't imagine how much money they spent to get blurry by puddle of mud in this game I hate to say it, but when that came on and I heard it, 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 I had like a moment. It took like two or three seconds for me to register what I was hearing, and I started laughing. <laughs> yeah. It I, it really it, shows the time period the game was made in. It dates it heavily. But if you're not thinking about that, like if you don't know that that's Puddle of Mud, you you would you would not have any qualms about enjoying that song in that moment. Yeah, definitely not. It definitely feels like a song that you could see our characters listening to in the break room. Yeah, I mean, it's butt rock, and that it, knowing the character who is playing the song, it definitely seems like something he would listen to. Definitely. It is really interesting. You talked about how big Puddle of Mud was back then. There were a lot of PS2-era games hilariously influenced by Fred Durst. Uh, how and crazy one- is that? Yeah, it's really weird. So I used to play a lot of those old uh, WWE games from this time period, and Fred Durst was an unlockable character in one of them. So you know, he got one of his one of the bands he found in Ace Combat. He was in uh, one of the WWE games. It's hilarious. Yeah, you kind of think of him now as a very cringe character, like a very cringe person, because people hate new metal and and Limp Biscuit. But that was. He was kind of on top of the world back then, and can you imagine how much money people were paying to put something in this game that now we're going to look back and sneer and be like, puddle of mud? Really? You really put that in your aircraft com- combat game? I love it, and I just want to I want to know like the uh, board meeting where they're like, if we want to sell them on it, we definitely need puddle of mud. Actually, yeah, what this- I really want to... What I really want to know is, does that play in the Japanese version, or do they replace oh. it with like a Japanese? No, I think it does. Uh, see, that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me, but uh, I was just wondering. Yeah, the the Japanese voices are interesting. I actually replayed the first mission with the Japanese voiceover, and a lot of the they do that. I don't know what the term is for it. The the English where they're using English words, but with Japanese pronunciation. Oh, yes. That's really common in a lot of Japanese games. No, they do it big time in this game, too. Because Oceans are supposed to be Americans. Yep. So uh, I just went ahead and uh, looked. It does look like the uh, that Puddle of Mud was in the uh, Japanese version as well. That's great. Did you play the arcade mode at all? I did not get around to playing the arcade mode. I ended up, uh, because of some medical issues, starting this a little bit late. So I just kind of went through the uh, story mode. However, I will say, interestingly, uh, I'm going to go back and play the arcade mode. I enjoyed this enough. Yeah, you should. Um, The music in that, I'll just go ahead and touch on that. It's way more shreddy electric guitar stuff. It's very, very hype music. Um, There is next to no story in the arcade mode, hence it being called arcade mode and not not story mode. Uh, <laughs> so they just kind of play some like Steve Vai, Joe Satriani type 
shreddy electric guitar stuff, which, you know, it's it's cool. I, I do like that kind of music in outside of video games, but in the context of this video game, I prefer the orchestral stuff. I can't actually touch on that since I didn't get to play arcade, but I can understand that entirely. The orchestral stuff seems to fit the mood of the game more. Yeah, and it is moody is a good way to explain this game and, and the soundtrack. So what about the voice acting? Do we both play this with the English dub? Yes, I played with the English dub. What did you think of the voice acting? I think I can say mixed bag. There you were think it was a few, mixed bag? I think there were a few really standout voice actors who I recognized. Because uh, like, I'm fairly certain that Crispin Freeman is in this game. And I really enjoy him as a voice actor. And all of your wingmen have good voice acting. Good to serviceable. Um... There is one, I can't remember who it is, but it's one of like, I think it's like the Colonel or something, and his voice, I I don't like his voice. Which one is it? Is it the, 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 is it Hamilton? No, I think. The guy I who think... slaps the, the camera out of the, out of the hand of the journalist? No, no, no. Hamilton's the Crispin Freeman guy. Okay. Uh, this is the guy, he's bigger, and he's the guy who's like, if you are innocent, that guy, and he has, like, the, he's just got a very weird voice. Oh, you mean the guy who looks like Peter Griffin, whose giant yes. fat neck you can see in the reflection of, <laughs> yes, <that's> the, one. <laughs> the reflection of the mission briefing screen? Yeah. Uh, yep. Okay, so, with voice acting, did you notice who the voice actor was that played the, the narrator? who is the uh, the journalist. It sounded familiar. Like, it sounded really familiar. That is Matt Mercer. That would be why it sounded familiar. This is like his second ever voice acting gig. 2004 was the first year he was... Um, I, I saw credits for him on his Wikipedia page. That is really funny and likely one of the reasons why I was thinking so much that, damn, this guy sounds familiar. Because do you know what I was doing in between levels of this? You were listening to Critical Role. I was watching Critical Role with Sarah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, uh, so I was hearing Matt Mercer even more than I realized I was hearing Matt Mercer. Yeah, he would have been like 21-ish. When, when this game came out, 21 or 22. So that really, that's why why his voice does sound different, because he was super young when yeah, he was recording his lines for this. Yeah, his voice has changed a lot since then. He, he definitely, it seems a lot deeper. He definitely sounds like a kid, kind of, in this game. He does, 100%. Good. He's still good back then, though. Very, still good. Still good. He did the role very well, I think. Yeah, he uh, captures the kind of, unsure freelance journalist you know who's a a little bit out of his depth but still wants to pursue the story yeah he, he has a sort of innocence i think that he brings to it yeah and then uh chopper was one of the more uh he's or his voice actor just has a very very recognizable voice you've probably heard him in a lot of things eddie frierson a lot of people don't know his name uh but he he his voice is just very recognizable yeah, I wonder always how the Japanese dub is going to be if the English people, English actors, were trying to capture the same spirit of the Japanese dub or if they were giving their own interpretation of the Japanese dub. It would be interesting to see because for the time period, 
of you know the early 2000s most companies were doing their own spin and not trying to fully adhere to the uh, Japanese uh, character interpretations. Uh, and then in the later 2000s, you know, we got a bit more like, oh, we're going to keep it, you know, exactly as intended. And now we're kind of pushing back to the other way. I only played the first mission with the Japanese voiceover, but from that brief amount, it sounded like Chopper in the English dub. He's really kind of goofy sounding, which is his point. He's he's, he's, he's the like comedic a clown. Relief. Yeah, he's comedy relief. He's kind of like a clown. Whereas the Japanese voice acting, he sounded a lot more slick, like a Fonz character, which is is still totally capable of being used for comedic relief, but it's a more, it's a different vibe of it. Yeah, he was a lot cooler and more like the bad boy, being rebellious and and talking back rather than doing it for a laugh. Yeah, because in the English, he definitely has that kind of. Uh comedic slacker vibe that's in a lot of like the uh media where it's like the main character's friend you know kind of loud disrespectful that kind of stuff yeah exactly k is probably a character who was pretty similar i imagine in the english and japanese because she's a very somber character and i don't think that's something that could change necessarily in voice acting with the way her lines are written yeah she's she's definitely more of a i would describe her as a bleeding heart and she she puts that into the voice acting as well. And see, then there's uh, Grim, call sign Archer. He was good. Uh, definitely captures the young rookie vibe. And see, that's a that's a good way to actually talk about it. Is most of these characters, while they do have their complexities, if you've watched an '80s action movie, you can probably identify the character tropes of them. Yeah, and their voice acting is very cohesive with what they're trying to be presented as. Yeah, so you've got, you know, Chopper. He is the loud, boisterous, comedic relief. you got Kay, who, as you said, is the bleeding heart. She's the most somber of the group. You have Archer, who is the, you know, the young rookie who just got added to the team and is eager to prove uh, himself, you know? Right. So you want to talk about the uh, gameplay now? Yeah, let's go to gameplay. I'll take it uh, at the start. So, Ace Combat 5 features over 50 flyable planes. And then, as Garrett was mentioning, you know, there's some 20-odd more that are non-flayable. Mostly those are things like like a giant bomber that's super slow, like a B-2 bomber that wouldn't be that interesting to fly, kind of against the design principle of the game. Or something like a UAV, which, it's unmanned, that's the point. <laughs> you, there, it doesn't let you fly those. Yeah, there's actually a funny thing about that where they're UAVs being unmanned and later on they're like, those maneuvers aren't human. Well, yeah. Duh. <laughs> uh, That's the point. But an interesting thing is that there are not enough mission to, I don't believe, to play once with every single plane. No, there's uh, not. And yeah. in fact, there are multiple uh, missions that are exclusive to a run so there are two points in the game where chopper will ask you a question that seems um benign it's just like some chit chat that he does i have never seen a more or a more subtle route split it's the most insane thing yeah he asks you if you've listened to a song and if you say yes 
you get the A-side missions, and if you say no or do not answer, you get the B-side missions. Which is a hilarious way to do a route split. It is. It's hilarious. Um, it makes you think that it's randomly selected, because at the end of that mission, the base commander flips a coin, and but the, the result of the coin flip is determined by your answer to Chopper's question. And when you do those missions, so the way that you unlock planes... One of the primary ways that you unlock planes is just by they're tied to completing a mission. And the A-side missions will give you not just one plane, they will unlock a family of planes. So, for example, on 12A, you unlock the F-15C, which has two further variants that you unlock. If you do 12B, you get the Su-27 flanker, which have three further variants and those are unlocked via kill rate which is basically just an xp bar for a plane that you fill by using it and killing stuff with it yes and something important to say is that this is not a static number your kill rate is determined by the plane uh with some requiring like the f uh the f4e does not require a high kill rate to get the f4g but it takes a lot to get the uh, MiG-2193. Yeah, it really does. It's kind of like, if you think about um, with Pokemon, some of them will level up super-duper quick and evolve super early, and some of them will uh, have Late game require much... Yeah, yeah, exactly, require much more XP to evolve, uh, to level up and evolve. Thankfully, though, it appears that the time that you put into them is warranted because some of those like first and second branch planes are fantastic yeah they really are uh so the the thing about unlocking more planes the way that they are different so every plane will have three weapon systems they'll have a gun which is uh you know like a cannon like a 20 millimeter cannon or something like that on lower difficulties that'll have unlimited ammo but when you get up to hard mode, it actually has limited ammo. And if you've seen Top Gun, you'll know what that reticle looks like, where the flight time between your plane and the enemy plane gives a little what lead you need to give. So it's, it's really challenging to use, but especially on lower difficulties, it's really helpful because if you run out of missiles, you'll have to use that. It's very rewarding getting a kill in a dogfight with the gun. It is. And the gun is not the same between different planes. For instance, the A-10 uh, Thunderbolt II has a 30mm cannon. It's a ground attack aircraft. And if you shoot the gun, you'll notice that it is angled slightly down, which is what you would want if you're shooting at ground targets. Whereas if you're an anti-aircraft plane, it would want to be pointed straight ahead. Yes, and that's really interesting to me because I almost exclusively played anti-aircraft planes even on the ground missions. So I would have to, if I wanted to shoot things with my gun, I'd be flying an inch above the ground. Yeah, kind of nose, like flying straight towards it. Yeah, which was a very fun gameplay tactic for me. I enjoyed the fast, low flying. Like a dive bomb kind of thing. Yeah, it was really fun. So... The second, ty this, the second type of weapon you'll have is the missile, and these the weapons are the same between planes. The missile performs exactly the same. The only real difference is, 
certain planes can carry more missiles than others, which we've talked about it before. But your planes carry dozens of missiles, dozens. There's essentially they're stored in hammer space. If you, you've ever heard that phrase, which that's just if you think of a cartoon character, that's that's where they keep their giant hammer is in hammer space. You know, <laughs> there is no physical way that you're going to get 80 aim 9x missiles on this plane but you know for gameplay purposes it's just you'll you'll see the missile like take off and fly out from under the wing but yet the missile still stays there <laughs> this is some realism they're definitely giving up in favor of of gameplay how do you feel about the missiles as a weapon do you think they were useful uh very <laughs> i i was getting a lot of use out of them those are your primary weapon right they were the, my primary weapon for the first, I want to say, like, f 10 to 15 missions. I started using my gun a lot more past that, though. But yes, I would say for the average player, they are going to 100% be their primary modes of attack. You can fire two of those at a time, and then they'll reload slowly. You can see in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen how they reload. They have kind of a iffy tracking ability, I found, at least playing on hard. Uh... It it's almost like the way the AI is designed. At some point, enemy planes will fly, just fly straight and be like, "Okay, now now blow me up." And if they're not doing that, they're they're flying yes. in circles and and outmaneuvering the the missiles. So that is one of the reasons that I ended up. You know how I said like for the first fifteen levels, use the missiles a lot. I use my gun more later than that because that's when you start to get into the actual dog fights with like more accomplished pilots. And my missiles just were not tracking these guys. No, and and there are so many enemies you'll have later on that... I mean, there were several different missions that I completed with zero missiles, zero special weapons, and like like two digits of gun ammo. Cutting it close there. Uh, but yeah. what you just mentioned, we gotta talk about special, special weapons. weapons. Yep, these are... There's several different types, and this is one of the main differences between the planes outside of mobility handling you know defensives uh this is what's going to draw you to a specific plane i would say yeah this is one of the ways that determines what a plane's specialty is going to be whether it's a ground or air attacker and there are quite a few options i didn't get a good count but there's probably more than a dozen there's Several different kinds of missiles, several different kinds of bombs. There are rocket pods. There's the F-4 has napalm. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. And they all perform different features, different... They all have different features, uh, different things that they do better than others. But they are pretty much all a straight upgrade in some way or another, over your gun and your regular missiles. And as such, they have vastly more limited ammo. Exactly. Normally, you're looking at like 10, 15. I don't think any of them have 20 that I saw. The highest that I saw on something that I used was when I had the oh God, or the XMAA, uh, and that came with 16, because I was yeah. using the uh, FA-22. So the XMAA, yeah, FA-22 is amazing. So here's a fun fact. If you play the arcade mode, 
if you finish one of the branches of the arcade mode, it unlocks the FA-22 immediately for use in story mode. So you, uh, from the Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't do that. <laughs> from the very first mission that you have the opportunity to choose a plane, you can be using the FA-22. And it has the XMAA. That's an advanced medium-range anti-air missile. It's a multi-lock-on missile, and it can fire at four different targets at a time. It's um, got a longer range. It's tracking is better. It's not immensely better, but it is better. And it's also a one-shot kill on most planes. Yes. So there is a point later on that I'm not going to talk about the story implications of it, but a fighter squadron that's supposed to be a big deal shows up to take you down. And it starts with them flying towards you. I had the XMAAs, and I killed the entire squad except for one with a first pass. Yeah, one volley. You know, it's funny. I had the same experience on a couple different points where enemy squadrons are flying towards you. Because the XMAA, it takes no loss if it hits. It's just, that's it. Bye. Outside of the really big things like the transport planes and the boss fights mentioned earlier, I never saw it fail to kill, what's it called, a fighter on my difficulty. Which, that's something I should mention. Uh, Garrett, you played on hard, right? I played on hard, that's right. And I played on normal due to having literally no experience with flight sims. Uh, And normal for me, as somebody inexperienced with it, felt like a really good difficulty. I played on hard. I would have played on ace, but um, you have to beat the game once before it unlocks his ace. Unlocks ace difficulty. I I beat Ace Combat Seven. I mentioned this last episode, but I beat Ace Combat Seven on ace difficulty and S ranked every mission. So that's really where I'm happy. Okay. Uh, what I was saying is. Uh, talking about the S ranks, that's another thing that we have not brought up. You are graded on your performance after every mission. Some of them have uh, point requirements, some of them have time requirements, but you'll get a grade from S down to I don't know what the lowest possible is. The lowest I I ever personally got, I struggled on a mission and got a B, but uh, most of the time I was managing like B to S. Yeah, I think B is the lowest I got too. I got, I was focusing hard on getting S ranks early on, but um, as as the deadline for this episode got nearer and nearer, I quit bothering with that as much. Yeah, another gameplay thing to talk about. This does not drop you right into a level half the time. A lot of times you will have when the level starts, you'll have more cutscenes, a lot of t- uh, some chatter. It won't light up your targets immediately, so it's got a little. A bit of a time you have to deal with before the actual real mission starts, which can be annoying if you're like me and had one mission where you were struggling and had to watch them repeat the same things in non-skippable dialogue for some of it. Yeah, I'll be honest. I got frustrated with that later and started using save states. I Uh, do not blame you. I should have done the same, but I'm too stubborn. There's one of the boss fights later. I'm not going to spoil it until the story, but I kept getting, uh, I kept crashing and I had to deal with like, no lie. This is like a five minute flight time to the location of where this boss fight is. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I think I know which one you're talking about. It's really frustrating when that happens. Yeah. Those, those last missions, the length of this game is is not 
long if you play it straight through like if you play it on easy you can beat it in one sitting but especially later on man it's so padded out by if you get to the very last like enemy in the at the very end of the level in fact here's a fun fact if you beat the mission and get a mission accomplished and crash before it takes you out of the level it will make you restart it and replay the whole thing Oh, God, that sounds miserable. I was very thankful that never happened. Yeah, so if you were doing that mission you're talking about and crashed at the very end, you'd have to replay it all over again, including that five-minute flight time. Just basically kill me at that point. Yeah. So the briefing we're talking about is... it's uh, It's like you're looking at a computer screen, and you can actually see the reflection of the base commander... Who is this giant, like, incredibly fat Peter Griffin-looking guy? And he has this this accent that sounds like he's trying to do an impression of Danny DeVito. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And that voice, it took me out of the game every time because I was laughing. Listen up! The biggest mistake Yuk Tabania has made in their blitz attack is that it had failed to sink any of our aircraft carriers. Yeah, I laugh too. It's like a it's like a close up of his of his third chin. It's really unpleasant uh, to look at, but it does that. And then it's showing you this wireframe map with icons for your plane, your allies, and whatever expected targets. There's a ton of information that it shows you on this screen. So it's going to give you the mission number, the operation name, date, time, the area. It gives you geographic coordinates. It'll give you a counter for enemies that are anticipated, which sometimes it straight up lies to you in service of surprising you later in the mission. But it'll divide those by air targets, ground, naval, and then actual mission targets, which it'll say TGT, target, and that can be anything, air, ground, or naval, but those must be destroyed for mission completion. Yeah, and... uh for people worrying about a bit of an information overload on this briefing and having to memorize it, you don't. There, I only, uh, you know, was taking expe- or special care to examine everything on the briefing on the, some of the later missions, but most of the time, uh, at least on normal difficulty, you can kind of just go in and then go to the targets and manage pretty well. Yeah, I think the most important part, the only part of that I really looked at was the target count to see whether I needed to bring something with anti-air or anti-ground capabilities, and pretty much I just pressed start through the whole thing. Because a lot of the stuff that it's telling you in the the briefing is already set up for you by the cutscene. Exactly. And it will, be expla- it will be explained to you as you're playing through the mission as well. Yeah, so uh, whenever you go to start a mission, after you're told a bit about it, you have uh, your hangar where you can select your plane. And not only do you select your plane, you select the plane for each of your squad mates. That's a really interesting choice. Did you mix and match very much, or were you trying to get everyone in the same plane? Uh, I mixed and matched a lot because I was buying one of every plane, so I was just swapping around, which led to some annoyances because in some later missions... Uh, your squad is, before you launch, they're graded on their anti-air or anti-ground capabilities depending on the specifications of a mission. And you need to get a team cost of the either air-to-air or air-to-ground up to a certain point or your squad mates will complain at you and tell you that it's not suited for this mission. Yeah, there was one where 
towards the end where I wasn't even able to get them satisfied. Like even if, <laughs> even though I equipped, I think it was uh, anti-ground planes. They wanted it was a high anti-ground capability. Even though I had all of them in F-18s, which have long-range air-to-ship missiles. They were not happy with my air-to-ground or air-to-air capabilities. Maybe they were just expecting me to have unlocked a more highly advanced plane by that point. Perhaps. So that was something I was running into. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this uh, for the listeners. Even if they're not satisfied, you can probably still beat the mission. They're not going to be very useful no matter what plane you put them in. Yep. That's just sad matter of fact is that you are going to do the heavy lifting entirely. A thousand percent. Uh, supposedly, Ace Combat 4 had one wingman who was super-duper good. Uh, Ace Combat 5, they were trying to balance it more. That's just what I've read. I haven't even played Ace Combat 4. There's an interesting thing in that later on, you get a different wing uh, wingman. I'm not going to spoil who it is. He was actually getting a lot of uh, kills for me. Was he? Way, yeah, way more than the other two. Interesting. I don't know if his AI is different or it was just that, you know, I had much better planes by that point or what. Yeah, I I thought actually that we'll we'll talk about this guy later, but I thought going back to voice acting, I thought his voice acting was probably the weakest out of all of them. I uh I agree. Um but then again, when you think about it, he definitely has the least to do with the plot. Exactly. He has the least lines of all your wingmen anyway. So once they make you squad leader, you can start giving orders to your squad mates. Yes. Which it's not, there's almost no depth to it. You can tell them to cover you, which means they fly up close to you. You can tell them to disperse, which means go look for targets to attack. Or you can tell them to attack, which means go shoot this thing that I'm looking at. And then you can tell them to use special weapons or not. And that's as far as it goes. Very simple, very serviceable though. That's right, and there isn't a whole lot of difference in between them all, but if you tell them to cover you, they will come help. Yeah, most of the time, I found it was more useful to disperse, because then, especially on escort missions, because then maybe some of the enemies might attack them instead of the escort targets, and I don't even, I don't think it's possible for your allies to be shot down. No, I, I don't think it is either. They're pretty much invincible, which is cool. I mean, considering that they, they suck, then... Um... Yeah, could yeah. you imagine if you got a game over if they got shot down and they could be shot down? Ugh, that would be awful. Uh, another interesting thing, I'm nearly 99% sure there's no collision on your allies and you. I think you're right. Uh, I was able to crash into uh, Pops later, I think. Yeah, there's yeah, but part... I mean your wingmen. Yeah, no, your wingmen, no. If you're supposed to follow someone, you can crash into them. But your wingmen, like if... If the mission starts out and all four of you are flying in formation, and you, I think you'll pass right through them, through general missions, normal missions. Where where that's part of the point is to avoid them. I don't think you can crash into it, them. It's very funny to me because I remember one time watching, and I had a kind of like a eh moment because Chopper just made a hard cut right at the start and yeah. just like slowly flew through me. I'm like, uh, okay. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, it clips through you. Yep. So, uh, let's go into a little bit about what type of missions you'll be flying if you play Ace Combat 5. Like, I'd say they're pretty, they're separated into several different categories. You have more traditional dogfighting missions. You have missions where you're taking out ground or naval targets, so you know you need to change accordingly for that. Uh, a very prevalent mission, especially near the mid and end game, is protect a convoy or a helicopter or something as enemies come from everywhere. 
Yeah, normally I everyone hates escort missions, but I understand why they put them in this game. The story kind of made it necessary, or maybe maybe they just made a really good excuse from the storyline to make me feel like, hey, I really want to protect these people. There were mo- they, mostly I, I thought those missions were fine. There was yes. one in particular we'll talk about later where the guy you're supposed to be protecting spawns far away from the from where you are at, which is the uh, objective that they're trying to reach, and I didn't realize that, and so... He died before I, you can make it to him? Yeah, several Same thing times here. Before, I, I know, before I even realized what was happening. Yep, I know the exact mission you're talking about, so that's pretty common. And when I say escort missions, it's like Garrett said, they're not as bad. This is not something like in real big throwback here, uh, Dino Crisis 2, where you have somebody who's, you know, you got to protect their weak, etc. With this, you mostly just destroy some things uh, that are in their way. It's not very unforgiving. And as long as you just keep a finger on the pulse and, you know, just like stay near your escort person, you, you should be fine. Like I would fly away from where they were uh, every now and then to go dogfight a little bit, and then I would be able to come back, shoot some pillboxes that were blocking them, and it was fine. Yep, and there's going to be dialogue in these missions, which I... It almost seems like there's no point, other than disguising the fact that there are branching storylines later on, <laughs> or two, bran- two missions that branch. It all boils down. Every single dialogue is yes or no. That's it. Left on the D-pad is yes, right on the D-pad is no. What's really funny is I have to just assume that uh, Blaze, our character, literally is only in- are capable of speaking in yes and no. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. He's a silent protagonist, except for literally two words that you can choose interchangeably. Yes, and uh, outside of those mission types I mentioned, I'd say that there's one more, which is what I would classify as boss fights. Yeah, now that's something you wouldn't really expect in a in a air combat game is a boss fight. Yes, so boss fights in this game can take the form of a naval battle, some type of air vehicle. And then I would also classify some of the fortress battles as pseudo-boss battles. They're more of a base destruction, but in a way they follow the same design philosophy that attacking the submarine or the uh, airship kind of stuff does, where you destroy specific... Uh, emplacements around to bring it down. So I'd I'd say the fortress uh, battles are kind of the equivalent of boss battles for the land, as opposed to, like, you know, the Synfaxi, which was the naval one. Yeah, the Synfaxi has multiple gun emplacements, hard points, that you can remove some of its attacks by blowing off these hard points. It has multiple phases, where once it reaches its final phase, it gains a new attack, where it shoots this airburst missile, and you have to climb above 5,000 feet before it goes off, like there's a time limit, and if you don't make it above 5,000 feet, when it blows up, it kills you, and you just have to start the mission over. I thought it was really clever, the way that they went about implementing the boss battles in this game, and just in general impressive that they were able to pull that off in something like a like an air combat game and make it feel convincing. Yeah, none of them feel forced. None of them. They all have really fun gameplay. They all feel like they fit in the narrative and the story and the art style of the game. Just in the world in general. I think the boss fights were a big highlight for me, especially two that happen near the end of the game. And the boss fights... It should be mentioned, 
the setting of the world being this post-Ulysses world where there are super weapons that are abundant, I don't think you could pull these boss battles off as convincingly if it were not for the setting having everyone with super weapons, half-developed super weapons that maybe were never put into use, and maybe ones that you thought were deactivated that they can reactivate, or super weapons that can get repurposed. They were designed for one thing, and now they're being used as anti-aircraft weapons. Not all of these things happen in Ace Combat 5, but just in Ace Combat in general, this is a recurring phenomenon where you'll see these crazy super weapons and you got to fly a plane and blow them up. <laughs> hey, it's a whole lot of fun to do that too. So, there anything else we want to mention on gameplay? Yeah, I got a lot to talk about gameplay. So, cool. once you get you've so, you've selected your plane, you've listened to the briefing, you launch into the mission, you have the camera perspective, which we've touched on a little bit, but I, I do want to touch on a couple more things about it. So there's three choices. There's the first person HUD. Did you use that one at all? I used that one for uh, a few missions. That is the default view. Yes. It has the best visibility, and if you think about it, it's like the plane isn't even there. All you can see is your heads-up display, which is a bunch of information about what direction you're looking, what weapons you have equipped, what the status of your plane is, compass, all that stuff. The second option... The immersive one. The, is the immersive one. And you don't have to pick, you know... You just click your right analog stick and it'll change it. You, you don't have to, to choose one and stick with it. The second one is the immersive one. This is the first-person cockpit view. And it's basically like you're the pilot sitting in the cockpit. does hurt your visibility quite a bit. A lot. This yeah. really blocks the most of your view, and you also lose the ability to look down. Like with the HUD, you can look down and see what's directly below you, and you can do that with the the next option, the third-person view as well. But you're sitting in a plane, and if you think about, like if you're sitting in a car, for instance, if you look down to try and look at the ground, you can't see anything, because the car's there. Well, you can't look down and see anything because the plane's there. So if you want to know what's underneath you and you're playing in the first-person cockpit view, you have to turn over <laughs> and look up. Which is, uh, you know, this might be something that somebody who's really just wanting a, a more immersive flight sim, they might gravitate towards that. But for me, who's more middle of the pack between immersive and arcade kind of flight sims, I found the chase cam and the HUD view a lot more manageable. Yeah, I think if you're just trying to get S ranks on Ace, HUD view is the most optimized, yes. HUD view is the most optimized way to play. Uh, the third person view, which is the, that's the way you played, right? For the majority, yes, though, as I said, I did uh, go into the HUD view for certain missions. It's like a plain chase cam. That one's actually my least favorite, believe it or not. Even though it's, I think it's more useful than the cockpit view. I, it really tanked my frame rate in this, but even without that, um, I, I just, I don't know. I know it's really cool to look at your plane and stuff, but it was just distracting to me. I found it easier for me to get into with my history with flight sims, because uh, that's the that was the default view for Rogue Squadron, and that was like yeah. the. That's the one I had the most experience in. So that's the one I gravitated towards. 
Uh, I didn't really find it that distracting, but uh, I did end up using the HUD view for certain things, though there are a few uh, areas later in the game where you're expected to fly through very tight environments, and I found the uh, third-person view helped a lot in that. Yeah, there are two missions we'll talk about. One of them is the Death Star Trench Run from Star Wars Episode Four, and one of them is the Death Star Two from Return of the Jedi. So, but we'll we'll get there, and you can imagine if a mission is like that, being able to see the extremities of your plane and know that you're going to fit can be very helpful. Very much so. And yeah, it's really funny, considering that they literally just are the Death Star Trench Runs, when you said that the music in the campaign sounds like Star Wars. So, you know, you're like, wait, I've played this. <laughs> so the world uh, that you're flying around in, it's it could convincingly be anywhere on our Earth. And that's, yep. because, that's because it was made with satellite images of our Earth. The stages are giant squares, almost exclusively with out-of-bounds markers on the outsides. If you fly beyond the outside, it'll start flashing up a warning on your screen saying out-of-bounds, and then you'll just you'll die. The mission will end if you fly away. You want to talk about the combat some, some more? Yeah, so let's, uh, let's go into that. So, as we mentioned before, there's three weapons that your plane is equipped with. You know, you got your gun, your missile, and then your special weapon. Combat, I would say the most important tool in your inventory is not any of those weapons, it's movement. You have to know how to move to even make use of these. Because you have to get clear line of sight, you have to get lock on, you have to not crash whenever you're trying to lock into that. So once you optimize movement, the weapons begin to come naturally. That's right, and learning to control the plane, I think, is probably the greatest barrier for entry. I know when I was younger, I did not use my rudder at all which to explain the way that that works it kind of causes the nose of your plane to slide to the left or right the the way that the plane flies uh, it's flying straight at all times you're not flying any sort of VTOL or helicopter or whatever you can control the roll of your plane, which is if you think of the plane flying parallel to the ground, it can lean over to the right, roll to the right, it can roll to the left, and then it can nose up or nose down. And so if you need to turn left, you would roll your plane to the left and pull back on the flight stick, if, if I'm explaining that well enough. I think you are. Whereas if you think about Rogue Squadron, if you want to fly left, you push left and it'll it'll do all that stuff automatically for you and there actually is an option to turn on basically training wheels baby mode uh, in the controls section yes i did not play with that so i cannot comment on that neither did i um the part that i that i really had to get used to using was the rudder because if you're using the gun a lot you need that for fine aiming especially in the dog fights Especially in 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 dogfights, yeah. But because to to make a fine to make a fine adjustment with your aim, if you think about if you're off just a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, you're not gonna have time flying into a target to roll left ninety degrees, pull up just a smidge, and then roll back right ninety degrees again. You have to use that rudder for those fine those fine controls. The thing is, it's just kind of slow. It's much slower 
to move your plane overall. Like if you're going to make a hard right turn, you would have to roll over to the right and pull back. If you were using the rudder, it would go super, super slow going that direction, if that makes sense. Yes, um, but that super slow does make it easier to do those fine-tuned shots that we were talking exactly. about. So in this game, you're going to have several types of enemies. Outside of the bosses, we'll just leave them out. You've got all these, all the different planes that are in the game, which do fight uh, relatively differently. You've got helicopters. You've got tanks on the ground. You've got surface-to-air missiles. You've got, I believe, four different categories of naval vessels. you got a, a lot of different things you have to fight. And then, of course, there's environmental targets, too, such as, oh, you might have to destroy this wall, or you have to destroy this barracks, etc. But, you know, those don't fight back. Yeah, uh, buildings and such. So you've got a lot of different targets. And outside of your gun, which is, you know, effective on all of them, and missiles, which is effective on all of them, but you probably don't want to waste, depending on the rest of the mission, each of those special weapons excels at dealing with a specific category of target. So, for example, if you're doing a mission where there's going to be no enemy air force, you do not want one of the, like, air-to-air missile special weapons. Yeah, because it, it, it literally be... cannot lock onto ground targets. Exactly. So, you know, if you're dealing with only ground targets, you want some of those, like, unguided bombs and stuff. Yeah, how does the game differentiate air targets from ground targets? Visually, for me. You just I look didn't... and see it's on the ground? Yeah. So, <clears throat> there are weapons that will lock on to ground targets only, and there are weapons that will lock on to air targets only. The default missile can do both, but the way you tell the difference is the targeting system in the game which is displayed in your HUD, will show a target designator around every every possible target. And the one that is selected will be bolded and will show you the range you are from that target. The difference is, if the target is in the air, that designator is a square. And if they're on the ground, it's a hexagon. Interesting. I didn't pick up on that, but that's yep. very useful. So there's a zone in the middle of the screen where your plane's targeting system can lock on. The range, the distance away from that target, depends on what weapon system you have selected. With the default missile, I believe it's 5,500. It's 5,500. It doesn't give a unit. Yeah. And then uh, different special weapons will make that much, much longer. Some weapons can also automatically lock on to more than one enemy. Some of them can lock on up to four. And you will press triangle to change your primary target. I have no idea, Austin, how it selects what target is next. I, I, I would think maybe it's going to select just left to right from what's on your screen, but that's not it. It doesn't select what's closest to the center of your screen. Sometimes I'll press triangle and it'll just select the same target again, which is super problematic. If you're flying down towards four targets and I'm trying to select the one on the far right and I keep pressing triangle and it keeps it keeps like selecting the one on the far left and the two in the middle, but never the one on the right. I had that happen multiple, multiple yes. times. Did you have that happen? Yes. Um, I just assumed that what it was doing uh, to decide what to target is it just rolled a dice. Yeah, I guess. It's random. Another thing is, tell me if you ever experienced this. Sometimes the lock-on, like, it'll go like a beep, 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 and then it'll 
make a make a ch a chime like a when it's locked on, it'll just keep searching and searching around the screen like this thing is directly in front of me and my lock on is wandering around the screen going beep 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 and it can't lock on and and I don't know why sometimes it was like this it's almost like maybe if you're not parallel to the ground or if you're moving in a certain way it has a harder time locking on yeah i think that is the case if we're talking about lock on though time to make a minor conf uh, confession so you know how I said I had no experience with Ace Combat games or really any type of flight sim of this type? Oh no, did you not know you could change your lock-on? Not for 10 missions. 10 missions you played without pressing triangle. 10 missions I played without pressing triangle. Garrett, it gets worse. Okay, go on. 15 missions I played before I figured out your alternate weapon, the special weapon. Oh, no. Oh, wait, Dude. no, no. It, it was probably 13 or 14, but I had no idea. I was just using my missiles, and then you don't have the planes with, like, 80 missiles at that point. You're mostly around, like, 50 or 60, so I would yeah. run out and then just be using my guns. And then I would see that. I'm like, how do I change to that? Select. Select is how you change to that. That's, like, half of the game you've played without using your special weapon. <laughs> I know. Which, granted, the first like five missions it makes you take the f5 which has an unguided bomb and it's basically useless unless you're fighting ground targets so i don't know man that sucks yeah it was so, funny though it was like uh it's like in dragon ball when goku and piccolo take off the weighted clothing because then when i finally figured out <laughs> i could use that i'm like i've ascended now so let's talk a little bit more about the planes um there are some fictional planes in this game that you can use that have fictional weapons. I don't know if you picked up on that. There are... There's one that actually has a laser cannon. Well, now I'm upset that I never played with that one. Yeah, you have... It cannot be unlocked in one playthrough. It takes at least two playthroughs. The, the multiple branching storylines or whatever, it's not branching storylines. It's two sets of missions that you choose with a yes or no answer. You have to com complete the A, the A side missions and the B side missions, but there are these hangars that are outside the normal target area. You have to fly over and blow up this hangar, and AWACS Thunderhead will come over and say, there were experimental weapon parts in that hangar. We'll retrieve them and bring them back. And there are five, I believe, five different ones. You have to blow up a hangar in four of the A and B missions, and then the very final mission, I think, has, has a hangar in it, too, that you have to blow up. And you un unlock the ADF-01 Falcon, which has a laser cannon. Oh, I think I'm familiar with this one. It's the one that looks really sci-fi, right? Yeah, exactly. It's super sci-fi. It looks like something from Macross. Yeah, I am familiar with the plane. I did not get to use it since I only did the one playthrough. So we talked about how each plane has unique statistic scores. Yep. And the special weapons, we, we mentioned those. In later games, you actually get to choose from a limited set which different special weapons you're going to put on which plane. But in this game, for instance, the F-22 always has the XMAA. You can't choose. Yeah, so that is why I said that the special weapons are more often than not the deciding factor on what plane you're going to end up picking later. Outside exactly. of, there's a, there's a few missions where it like suggests having high mobility. So in that, you might go towards like, oh, okay, uh, I need to have high mobility, probably shouldn't use, what's a low mobility thing, the 
is it A13 or A3 or whatever? A10? Yeah, A10. Oh, the, it, there's the there's the A6 Intruder, which is one of the early ones, and the an A10 Warthog or Thunderbolt 2. Yeah, and one of them has, like, mobility 30. And, yeah, and it's then, super low. And then, you know, in that mission, you might be like, oh, I want something, like, at least in the 70s. So mobility is another stat you're going to pay attention to. I will admit, though, that I never really paid much attention to defense. I just tried not to get hit. Yeah, exactly. And if you're on ace difficulty, you're going to get shot down in one missile anyway, which that's something that that's something that we need to talk about. If you're trying to S-rank these missions, there is no possible way that you're going to do it with the early ships because they are too slow. Several of these missions, like probably probably 75% of them have a score limit and the other 25%, maybe a little bit less than that, have a time limit, like you need to finish the mission in six minutes or less. You're just not going to be able to do it fast enough with the starter planes and you're not going to be able to get in between targets fast enough to S-rank missions. So... If you're trying to S-rank missions, it's best just to play through at one time and then unlock a really good plane and come back later. I I agree. And the two secret the, the two secret aircraft, the two secret aircraft that you get later are kind of ideal for that, which those two secret aircraft are not real. They're they're experimental like sci-fi planes designed for this game. Yeah, so it is not impossible to get S-ranks without having the late game things. It's just going to be pretty difficult for some missions. Some missions, though, are very simple. There's a few missions in this game that only take, like, two to six minutes to beat. I'd say the average mission time is, like, 10, 10 to 20 minutes. What do you think? Yeah, I would even say maybe five to ten minutes for, for most of them. Yeah, uh, I guess I'm just... The most fresh thing on my memory is the latter half of the game. Yeah. And, and I honestly, some of those may just be... Uh, I spent that time because one of them, if you die, you have a five-minute flyback. Yeah, and it's not just a five-minute flyback. Like, there's a timer on your screen that you have to wait for the five minutes to go down. Yep. Before you can do anything. So what uh, what planes would you say you use the most over the course of gameplay? So I started out, and I played the arcade mode so that I can have the F-22. You have to use the F-5E Tiger II at first, and then as soon as you can select planes, I was flying that F-22. Once I got to mission 12, I chose the B-side mission. Um, I think that was the one where you unlock the the Sukhoi family. It might be the si mission 16. But I, I ranked up the Su-27 because I wanted to get the uh, Super Flanker and then the Terminator. Turns out that there aren't enough missions to unlock the Terminator. You would actually have to grind, which is the, the third plane in that family. But most of my time was spent... Flying the A-10 Thunderbolt 2 uh, for anti-ground. And then if I needed something that could do both, I flew the F-A-18 Hornet. And then the rest of the time, if it was anti-air, I was flying the Su-27 Flanker. Nice. I'd say uh, the majority of my time before I unlocked the uh, F-A-22 because it was just amazing. I loved that plane. Um, so good. Yeah, I was using the A-6E quite a bit the intruder uh because i just i i don't know why i liked it it's kind of goofy looking it's super round yeah, yeah that's i think that's why i liked it i also use the f16 a lot but that's also just because i would say that the f16 is one of the more recognizable things like you can ask somebody to name a jet they're probably going to say either like the f14 f15 f16 so that was yeah, one that sure. I, that was one that you know was very familiar to me and i spent a lot of time on it 
I use the Mirage 2000 a bit, uh, and then of course the Su-27 a little bit. Yeah, I like I really like the Sukhoi planes. There's a Su-47, the Burkett. That's usually my favorite uh, plane in these games. That's the one with the wing swept forward. Yep. The thing about that plane is, I don't know if you know this, but in real life, there's only one. <laughs> what? There is only one of those planes ever made. Yeah, it was like a demo thing. It was oh, so you don't even mean one still in service or something like that. You mean there's one. They made one. One SU-47 ever. And uh, But then you'll see like the Offner Squadron. That's what they fly, I think. Right? Or or maybe it's the Gradox yeah, no. Squadron flies those? One of them does, though. And then the other one that they fly is the F-15S MTD. That's uh, a, an S-Tall version of the F-15. There is also one, one of those. They really went all out as far as taking these things that are... They're, they're not fantasy planes. There is one, but making them, rendering them in such a way that you can you can actually touch in a way touch this thing that that you otherwise would never be able to interact with in real life exactly and as we've mentioned before all the planes do have their unique statistics and stuff and outside of the weapons i'd say movement is one of the places that you definitely feel that the most you can tell the difference between using the uh like the F-16 and the A-6E. They do not feel similar. Yeah, you can tell when your plane's kind of tubby. That's for sure. Did Could you tell the difference between planes that had high stability and low stability? No, I, I couldn't really. Neither could I. I think that may be one of those things where once someone explained it to you, you could tell and then you would never be able to go back to under, to not understanding it. But as for right now, I couldn't figure it out just by myself. Yeah, same here. Uh, it's one of those stats that I kind of just ignored. And I, I did it all right with that. So is there anything else about gameplay that you think we should touch on? Camp our campaign length, maybe, for the like how long it would take to complete the campaign and how long it would take to complete the arcade mode. So for people you know who want to know how long of a time investment this is, I don't want to put this in the story section because you know these people might want to play it blind. Yeah, if you want to play through the arcade mode, if you choose the easy path, you can probably do it in a half hour. That's if you if you just like beeline it through, that doesn't count having to start over and replay the same mission over and over because you can't do it. <laughs> the story mode, uh, I don't know. I spent a long time on the story mode, but that's because I was really exhaustive with my notes. I really have a lot to say about the story in this game. Maybe, yeah, the st- maybe ten hours or something. In terms of full gameplay, because it, it there's a tracker that tells you you know like how your flight time, and as far as I can tell, that doesn't track time in the menu. No, th- that only track that doesn't track the time in the briefing or cutscenes. That's just time that you have control of your plane. And I think I finished it with like five hours as my flight time. Yeah, that was around five for me too. And there is a fair amount of cutscenes. This game is, like, Custom Robo was very light with the story. I would not say that Ace Combat is. No, it's it's not story heavy. It's not Metal Gear Solid 4. You're not sitting here watching a feature-length cutscene, but the story is not just interspersed through the cutscenes, but also through the radio chatter throughout the game people talking and the events that happen while you're flying your 
It seems like everyone in this game, every character in this game has a radio and can talk to you, even <laughs> whether it's your wingman, whether it's the enemy squadron, whether it's the AWACS, whether it's some random foot soldier on the ground who will yell at you about people breaking through the door or whatever at certain points, you know? Yeah. It's hard for me to tell how much of that is supposed to be this is actually happen, happening in universe and how much of it is this is given for my benefit uh, as the player. Like, was Blaze actually hearing all this chatter? Because there's a few times where some chatter on the ground should have been picked up by one of your wingmen, but it's not, so, you know, it never gets mentioned. So I don't know, is that given for the player's benefit or is Blaze actually hearing that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. It's almost like, is is Blaze actually hearing it, or is it just to make you, the player, feel the stakes of the moment? I think that's more or less what it is, because I think the moments that Blaze is actually legitimately hearing things are prompted with the yes or no uh, options. Yeah, that's got something to do with it for sure. I wonder. I mean, there are obviously situations where soldiers on the ground will talk to aircraft, but usually it's like one guy who's with a group of soldiers that does that, the JTAC, but I, I don't know. It, it just seems like literally tons of people in this game screaming over the radio at all times. Yeah, so I'm not going to get into the spoilers of this moment. However, a good way to explain why I'm hesitant to say that Blaze actually hears all this and I think it is given for the player's benefit to understand the stakes of the war, both sides, you know, what the ground forces are doing, is there's a moment where you hear a conversation between two ground fighters talking about you up in the air, but they're not addressing you. They're talking to each other about you, and they don't appear to be any type of, like, you know, radio operator, so I think it is just given for our benefit. Yeah, and that's all this is to say that it's hard to really differentiate which percentage of the story is gameplay or, or of the game, the time spent in the game is listening to story and which percentage of it is playing the game because it's all kind of happening at the same time. There are some cutscenes where you're not playing and you're just watching a cutscene, but that's maybe 10% of the time that you're sitting in front of the game. And then there's a briefing, which they're talking at you and giving you instructions, but like you're kind of interacting. You can move the map around and look at the little icons and see the, the polygons for your targets and stuff. I, I don't I don't think that would really count as playing the game, do you? No, I wouldn't say so. But talking about the time that you spent, uh, a quick trip to YouTube tells me that all cutscenes put together, so all the cinematic cutscenes, that's going to run you about 50 minutes. However... Five zero minutes? Yes, 50. Five zero. But if you look at all cutscenes and in-game events plus the radio chatter, that's three hours and 40 minutes. So a lot more. Yeah, a lot more. All right, so we've given a reasonable expectation for the time for arcade and story mode. Do you just want to kick into talking about arcade and story mode? Uh, let's do it. Since you were the only one who played uh, arcade mode, I will let you take this section. Okay, so when you start arcade mode, the first thing you'll notice is that the menu turns blue. I never played the arcade mode. All the time I've spent playing this game was playing the story mode over and over uh, playing on Ace, difficulty, trying to S-rank missions, and unlocking new planes. 
And out of all that time, I never turned on arcade mode. And when I did, the menu turned blue and I was dumbfounded. I, I'm used to seeing the green menu. And when it turned blue, that was crazy. That's hilarious. See, it's really interesting to me that if I had ever started arcade mode, that wouldn't have meant anything to me. You'd be like, hey, this is just the way that it lets me know that I'm in arcade mode. But no, it's not that it's way blue. for me. It's Yeah, it was, it was world earth shattering. An earth shattering revelation. Okay, so the arcade mode in this game is a direct sequel to the events of Ace Combat 4, which doesn't really mean anything to me. I'm an Ace Combat 5 guy. I never played Ace Combat 4. But the menu splash screen is different. It's called Operation Katina. You're playing the same character as Ace Combat 4, but that's that's about as far as it goes. Like They call you the same name, but there's no real story to speak of. Comparing this to the campaign, when they say arcade mode, they really mean it. It starts with a countdown timer that's really short. You have super limited missiles, which, I mean, 20 missiles is still way more than a real plane can carry. But compared to the 80 that you're getting on planes in campaign, yeah, the um, enemies that you kill will grant you additional time, and it shows a point value under their name. Some enemies that you kill will grant you more missile ammo, and some of them will grant you special weapon ammo, which every plane, every mission in this game, you're using the same plane. That's going to be the F-22 Raptor the whole time. Um, Once you complete arcade mode, like we've said a couple times before, it unlocks F-22, the F-22 Raptor for use in the story mode, and there are multiple branching paths through the arcade mode. If you do every mission from every path, then you'll unlock the ability to choose a plane to play in arcade mode. It doesn't grade you per mission necessarily. It will tell you the amount of points you've earned. But once you complete a run of the arcade mode, it will grant you an overall rank for the whole playthrough. It's not roguelite because it doesn't make you start over but it's kind of run focused in that way so it's almost um, like a fighting game arcade mode yeah exactly i had a really easy time on pretty much all of these the only one is i i played through the hardest branch which was the d branch and mission 6d had a massive difficulty spike for me it took probably 10 tries or so the main reason for this is there's no way to earn additional missiles, so you really have to use your guns a lot and make those missiles count. Yeah, you have to make the missiles count, but you have 20 missiles and there's like 30 aircraft that you have to shoot down. So there's no possible way that you're going to or, or well, it's probably more 20 missiles and 20 aircraft, and each aircraft is going to take two missiles to shoot down. So there's no possible way to to get missile shoot downs on everything. So you have to use your guns, which doing this mission was probably good because it made me, it forced me to quote unquote get good with the guns again, which came in really useful. The final mission is going to be mission seven and you have to fight X02 Wyverns, which that's one of the secret planes that you can unlock for the campaign. And depending on which path you took, it has a different number of them, the enemy squadron that's approaching you. Uh, I, I chose the hardest one, so I got to fight six of them at once, and it was actually way easier than the previous mission, so 
go figure. Always funny how that works. Yeah, right? I mean, they were they were harder enemies to fight than any of the planes previously, but you had enough missiles to do it. And then there were fewer of them overall, so it was easier to... Not as big of a challenge to, to shoot them down with your guns. I beat that mission on my first try, the boss mission, and I got a rank double S for arcade, which triple S looked like that was the highest. I didn't quite get there. Uh, and is double S available in story? Because if it is, I never saw it. No, it's not. Only okay, I didn't think S. So. S rank is the highest for story mode. All right, so arcade mode, would you recommend people, when they first pick it up, to go through arcade mode before they go through story? Or do you you think tutorial, then story first? I think tutorial first, and then... um. It's hard to say. It it's it's a judgment call on your part. If you play through the story mode first, you're going to experience the power curve of the aircraft in a natural way. But if you like if you're an Ace Combat veteran, for instance, if you've played other Ace Combat games, you may want to do the arcade mode first just so you can get that F-22 Raptor straight off the rip and that might make make it more fun for you to just sort of smash those story missions really easily. Yeah, I, that way is definitely better, I would say, if you're more in it for the story uh, rather than saying the natural curve of plane progression. Yeah, and we'll get to conclusions at the end, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that if you haven't, if you are interested in story games and you haven't experienced a story of this, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth this game for the story. I'd agree, and I don't have any nostalgia for this game. It's my first time playing it, and I can say I thoroughly enjoyed the story. All right, so on that note, let's talk about the story mode. Spoiler warning. Yeah, major spoiler warning. We're going to talk about everything, and we're going to talk about it in order. So if you've played the game somewhat, or if you played it a long time ago and you don't remember everything, feel free to start listening and stop when we get to a part where you become unfamiliar. Yeah, so uh, Garrett has a lot more detailed notes than I do for this part because the power went off in my house and deleted everything. But thankfully, uh, all of it is very fresh in my mind because I beat it this morning. Uh, I was uh, cutting it close. Austin's had a very eventful couple of weeks and have not left him with a lot of game time, but it's all right. So thankfully, though, very thankfully, is that it, I did end up playing it, you know, very recently, so I can actually give commentary on each of the levels, because I do remember them all. So we've talked about the characters during the voice acting section. Let's just go over them a little bit more in depth if you have some notes. The, yes. Uh, first character, the first character I want to mention is Albert Jeanette. Yes. That's, that's the narrator. He's a freelance journalist who kind of rides shotgun with some of the characters, and he is with your squadron throughout the whole adventure that they go on. And he's publishing his works that have some minor effect on the story, but he is the eye through which you view the story, whereas Blaze is your actual character. Yeah, you definitely see the story more through uh, Jeanette's point of view rather than Blaze. Blaze is almost more just like a tool to progress the story, though you do get options on how to respond to things. He doesn't contribute any like greater narration like Jeanette does. Yeah, Jeanette is sort of the brain of the story, 
whereas Blaze is the hand. I would agree with that uh, assessment. Do we want to go in detail about each of the characters? Yeah, let's talk about Albert Jeanette some. Okay. Tell me what, what you think about him. I thought he was good. I liked him. Uh, it was, I guess the best way to say it is it becomes clear whenever you get, I think it's the first or second cut scene that you know how they are going to structure the story where this is almost, or this is like I said back in the previous sections, it's almost like a war documentary. Like we're watching, like, you know, like we're uh, Ocean citizens watching some of his footage later. It's definitely put through that light for a lot of it. Though later on with some things that happen in the story, it does change to being more cinematic and less, uh, uh, I guess like draw or like his official recordings but he himself is a uh like a war journalist uh he's your narrator he's really soft-spoken yeah he seems very not naive but very young and fresh but also kind of a go-getter where he's very much he's there with you the whole time yeah it and... feels it definitely feels like this is his first time like really getting on the front lines and stuff, which I think is probably just true because, you know, if, if he's supposed to be a similar age to his voice actor, Matt Mercer was like 21 at the time, and he definitely sounds younger. Didn't they say that the last big war was like 15 years ago? Yeah, exactly. That's, <clears throat> which is covered in the video game Ace Combat Zero, which it was released after Ace Combat 5, but it was a prequel to Ace Combat 5. But yeah, 15 years ago, so he would have been a kid. So yeah, this is his first time really going over any war, and... Uh, he does a really good job, I think. He does, he does. He's Both very good at and his the voice job. Actor. Though, so, it, it's interesting that I don't think he really knew he was going to be a war reporter, because the war happens during the game. It does not... You are not... Uh, the opening cutscene isn't, they've declared war, you're one of the reserve pilots, you know, that not that kind of thing. You see the start of the war. Yeah, the the game opens where he's just there to report on, hey, these are the people who are on this island and they're training. They're out here for training. He's doing like a like a biography it, to some extent, just talking about the pilots. Yeah, which uh, while all of our main squad are basically trainees who are become the most experienced. Uh, there are a few really notable people on the base uh, who he may have been there to interview, people like uh, Captain Bartlett. Yeah, his call sign is Heartbreak One. He's supposedly a legendary fighter pilot and trainer, which you'll learn more about him as the story progresses and just why they consider him to be legendary. Bartlett comes across as super gruff, but... Really, like, he loves his trainees and would do anything for them. There is actually a note I have here on the first five missions where I put, I feel like we all should have been court-martialed six times. Really? Yeah, there was a few things where Captain Bartlett definitely is the type who does not stay completely straight to the orders if it would endanger his squad. Yeah, Captain Bartlett strikes me as... He's been in the military forever and ever and has more experience than his commanding officers. And he kind of knows better and and does what, what he knows to be right and not what his commanders tell him to do. Yes, which uh, there are some repercussions for that. But uh, 
he def or he directly disobeys several orders whenever it would put his pilots at risk, and I think that really shows a lot about his character. He calls his trainees nuggets, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and he gives nicknames. Yes. Uh, so we are kid. That's what he calls us. That's not our call sign. No, it's not. Our call sign is Blaze, but. Everyone calls us kid regardless. Nobody really calls us Blaze. Well, Nagase does a couple times, but Yeah, Nagase calls us Blaze, but uh Davenport, Chopper, he basically exclusively calls us kid. So the the next person is uh K Nagase. She's Edge. Yes. So K Nagase, as we mentioned back in the voice actor or the audio section, uh, she's a bit of a bleeding heart. She is very somber, a very, you know, kind of sad-sounding character. She's a hopeless romantic. You will hear her wax lyrical about the Arkbird later on. That's something that we'll touch on. The Arkbird is a orbital spacecraft that was put into orbit to collect debris from the Ulysses asteroid. And she has some fascination with it, and every time it comes up in the story, she'll she'll talk about it on and on. She just loves it, and and it you know she kind of shows her heart at times like that. Yes, um, a a good thing to show, like just you know the kind of bleeding heart, uh, thing is she's trying to basically rewrite one of the books from her childhood that is like lost a bunch of pages. Like that's what she's doing in her free time or something. Yeah, you can see it in one of the cutscenes where the pages are missing and she's trying to like hand write the the words that have fallen out. Yeah. So she is I would say the character who you end up talking to the most over the course of the game. She's always kind of like right there with you. Yep. Um Alvin Davenport, that's Chopper. We've talked about him some. Yeah, this is the uh, loud and boisterous sort of comic relief character, in, at least in the English version. He constantly is getting reprimanded by command throughout the entire game for not taking things seriously. And I think there's at least six missions where they're like, uh, Davenport, we told you to cut the chatter. Yeah, there's another part where someone's like, hey, where's that motor mouth? Like, he has a reputation. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And he works very hard to earn it. Yes. Next up would be uh, Hans Grimm, or Archer. That's right. His call sign is Archer, but everyone calls him Grimm anyway. Yeah, he definitely has the least used call sign, because like Nagase will call us Blaze, Davenport does not. But I can only remember uh, the Archer call sign being used whenever like he's taking off. He's like Hans Grimm, Archer, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I honestly thought his call sign was Grimm. I didn't even remember that it was Archer. Yeah. It says that when you go to select his plane, but he's uh, he's actually a trainee, and after some events that happen to shuffle up your squadron formation, he gets added to the roster. As a trainee, he comes in, and he's super, he's a noob, let's put it that way, and he acts like it. But yes. as, the, as the story progresses, he becomes more familiar with flying and with combat, and you can sort of see him get battle-hardened over the storyline you can see his confidence increase so that's a good way to put it he is a character who is definitely put there to at the start of the game for the first uh little bit we're kind of the newbie and we're being tutored and then he's introduced later whenever we're more experienced and now it's almost like you know we are teaching him 
Yeah, we have assumed the mantle of squadron leader, and he is what we were before. There any other characters we want to talk about, or do we want to talk about them as they come up later? We can talk about them as they come up later. The only one really worth mentioning is swordsmen will join your, like, depending. There are some missions where swordsmen will join you, and I thought he was just okay. I didn't care for him too much. He is the least used of the characters, and it definitely feels that way with the voice acting and character. He's, as Garrett put in a previous thing, he's got the least lines, he's got the least development. He's just kind of there. Uh, That's how I would describe him. Yeah, it's almost like, hey, you're the person who would normally fill the fourth slot in your squadron is busy right now, so you get this guy, and we didn't want to just have him named, like, you know, pilot or whatever, so it's very token. He does have at least one moment later. Right. Hey there, pardon the interruption. I bet you're wondering where the rest of this podcast is, and why the title is part one. Well, we reached the three-hour mark on recording our episode about Ace Combat 5, The Unsung War, when Austin and I realized we were not going to be able to fit all of this into one episode. So, after the fact, we've decided to split this into two episodes, just episode two, part one, and episode two, part two. This will be part one, concluded here, which will have encompassed our discussion about the gameplay and setting, etc., of Ace Combat 5. Part two is going to be a fairly in-depth discussion about the story, of Ace Combat 5, as well as our conclusions and final thoughts. If you're interested in playing along with us, feel free to join our Discord server, which should be linked in the show notes or in the description. We will be playing Lost Kingdoms 2 for the Nintendo GameCube in our next episode, so if you'd like to join us, please feel free to do so. And make sure, if you've gotten this far, to tune in in a couple of days for the second half of Episode 2. Ace Combat 5 The Unsung War on the Circle Strafe Podcast. Thank you.